From Neon Hum Media, this is Dirt Cheap. I'm Jeffrey Golden. And I'm Amanda Meadows. And we are reading Murder in the Glass Room by Edwin Rolfe and Lester Fuller. Amanda, yes. do you remember what happened last chapter in this crazy book? Okay, so Phil takes Shelly to Rosa. Yeah. And it's tense mm-hmm. and awkward. Super and, awkward. And Rosa starts acting really sus. Yeah. And uh, Carlos is like extra like bon vivant to like overcompensate, <laughs> which was like kind of really a funny cool. vibe. Yep. Uh, like and, we turned up Carlos. Yeah. <laughs> Carlos knob. <laughs> yeah, they really <laughs> oversaturated the Carlos in that scene. Uh, but yeah, anyway, long story short, things got weird and Shelly's now staying with Carlos to be safe, uh, in air quotes. Mm -hmm. And uh, Phil and Rosa have like a weird fight where he projects yet again that they should be together or that they had a chance at being together or that that was ever something that she would have wanted instead of seeing him as a pitiful soul who she's like (laughs) kind of like like tethered to now somehow. Yes. He was the like stray feral cat who just kept coming back for salami and after a while you just become your de facto pet. Like That is a good metaphor. Yeah, you know, sometimes yeah, this is a classic salami mommy situation. (laughs) You know, anyway, so he runs away in yes. his like like shitty teenager stomping run. Yeah, uh, takes Shelly's car. Yeah, he takes Shelly's car. Super cool. Yeah, he goes to, to fucking Professor Stanley's <laughs> office, the hottest place he could go. He could go, and uh, it's skulking around, and eventually gets dragged into like an alley and gets beaten by by some goons. Some goons you know, standard goons, and uh, we hear gunshots, and we're like, "Is this the end?" Right. But no. That's right. It's not. The dust clears and it's Murdoch. Murdoch. All right. Well, that catches us up. Time for the, the penultimate chapter. And that uh, we're going to divide this one into two parts. And I've got to warn you up front. Uh, this chapter is really bad. It's very racial. It's racially. It's racist. Racial, racially racist scene. It's racially racist. <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's do it. Chapter 16. I pulled up outside the Oracle Auditorium a few minutes after 8.30, left the car in a small parking lot behind the big building, and soon joined the throng of people milling around the entrance. There were more cops there than I'd seen in one place since the UCLA Southern California football game the previous autumn. But the way I had it doped out, they weren't looking for me tonight, not here. I was right. A couple of them looked me straight in the eye, but all they said was, keep moving. Do you think that, like, an event hosted and thrown by his... Arch enemy is like not gonna notice if he's here. This is a guy who tells himself the opposite of what he knows. Right. <laughs> this is like he lives in opposite land. This is so weird. Of course, he's gonna be recognized immediately. The auditorium was one of the biggest in Los Angeles, 
I didn't know exactly how many people had seated, but my guess was around 8,000. As I made my way down the orchestra, I saw that the place was pretty well filled, but not entirely. I went to the right rear section and took an aisle seat. I had a good view of the audience. It was made up mostly of middle-aged and old people, all of them dressed in colorless gray and black. There were many white-haired heads and as many bald ones. Here and there were young men, some of them in uniform, others in civvies, and there were a few, a very few, young women. So it's interesting that it's mostly described as old people. You would assume if this organization is targeting veterans, it's a lot right. of fresh veterans right now. There would be a lot of, you know, 20-year-olds, right. 19-year-olds, anywhere from, yeah, like, I mean, there were people in their in their 20s and 30s uh, and 40s, you know, going to war, but, like, it was mostly younger dudes. Right. So, yeah. So it's interesting that this, this organization, I guess, is targeting older veterans, right? Maybe folks from World War One or from other... Crimean War, all the other, like, weird yeah. off-the-books wars that we did. <laughs> Pocket wars. Where we just... We were just running scams constantly. Right. We still are. But, like, the way we were running scams, just like, oh, yeah, we'll quickly go to this one island and, like, shoot up a bunch of people and take a resource and, you know, we don't have to tell anybody about it. Uh, yeah. So maybe those wars. A bunch of those. <laughs> the under-the-rug wars. Yeah. <laughs> People kept streaming in, and pretty soon I was no longer in an oasis of empty seats. An old couple started to try to pass me, but I got up and moved in, giving them my aisle seat. The lights began to dim all over the hall. When they were three quarters out, the stage curtain started going up slowly, and a brass band, clustered at one side of the stage, let out a brassy fanfare, and then went into the opening bars of the Star Spangled Banner. Through the loudspeakers, a baritone voice picked up the anthem and gave it all he had in that slightly off-key and melodramatic manner of 10th-rate opera singers. The audience picked up the melody with gusto, if not with any special faithfulness to the notes. I stood there in the darkness, listening to the old man and the old lady next to me wheezing the words out. And then I began to say the words too thinking all the time it was a shame, a damned shame. Every faker and crackpot from L.A. to the East Coast whitewashed himself in the words of the national anthem. When it came to the part beginning and the rocket's red glare, most of the male voices died away and only the high female sopranos carried the melody along. That always happened. That was always the trouble with the star-spangled banner. I never knew anybody who could carry the tune straight through from beginning to end without shifting keys. You had to take the melody the way a car takes a steep hill, by slowing up, shifting gears, going into second, and then hoping you'd make it. He has a lot of opinions on the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. For somebody who has shown no interest in singing or... I mean, I guess art, like visual art, but only to say, like, Picasso's weird and horse paintings are good. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> think he would, like, appoint himself as, like, qualified to, like, talk about how people make music or, you know, things that are just clearly outside of his world. <laughs> as the band and the voices came to the last line and the home of the brave, 
A tall figure stepped out from the wings and walked confidently toward the center of the stage, holding his right arm up and greeting to the audience. The hall went wild. Everybody stayed on his feet and applauded and shouted and whistled and stamped feet on the floor. The last time I'd seen anything like it was when Van Johnson had walked into Grauman's Chinese on an Oscar award night. But this had in it more than just the simple quality of adoration. In this ovation, there was an explosive release from years of pent-up frustration and unhappiness. Stanley had mounted a small podium on the stage and faced the audience from behind the lectern-like stand, which was piled high with papers and books. He held both arms high in the air and beamed, indulgent and self-assured. He made a handsome, compelling figure. The audience kept up the racket. The old couple next to me exhausted themselves shouting. Two groups of men in blue uniforms, just like those of the ushers, suddenly appeared at each end of the stage. The center man in each cluster carried a huge flag. One was the Stars and Stripes, and the other a gray flag with a blue emblem that was composed of a big book, presumably the Bible, with a flaming torch and a bayonet crossed over it. Over the top of the flag in red letters were the words, Veterans United. Oh God, <laughs> I don't like this. So this is, the organization no. has a flag, which is always a good sign. No. It's always a big thumbs up to big. an organization that's like America and also this new flag. <laughs> new idea. This, you're going to like this one. <laughs> there must have been at least five minutes of what is called spontaneous applause. Then Stanley raised both his hands in the air. The clamor began to subside till there was just a trickle of noise from here and there. Then that died away, and the place was hushed, expectant. His unctuous, vaseline voice beamed through the loudspeaker system. My good friends and fellow soldiers in a great cause, he said. And then, after a well-rehearsed pause, welcome. The audience cheered and then waited for the words of wisdom. Greetings, he said. The intensity of the spots that played on the two flags were exceeded only by the powerful beams focused on the figure of Stanley, alone now in the center of the stage, tall and cadaverous and imposing in his isolation as a priest at an ancient pagan rite. At that, remembering the way he had spoken just that morning, the self-righteousness, the holier-than-thou business, the utter fanatic self-centeredness of the guy, I guess that's what he imagined himself. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, right. you know, he's a cult leader. Yeah, he's a cult. You, 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 you already know, have said he's a cult leader. Yeah, he's a cult leader who's like an aspiring dictator. I think. Isn't it funny how Phil has to keep like repeating this to us? It's I like know. he is he, like just so everybody knows this guy is evil, but also he's bad. <laughs> but check this out, he's rotten to the core. <laughs> yeah. it's like, we 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 get it. We know. <laughs> Stop reminding us how bad Stanley is uh, to deflect from how obviously. Impotent and shitty you are, Phil. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like, well, you got, I mean, but this guy. This guy's way but, worse, right? This guy's so much worse. <laughs> the audience had been silent for a full minute before Stanley began to speak. Friends and fellow soldiers, he began, this is a sacred occasion. All of us know why we are gathered here tonight, all of us know the forces of evil rampant in the world 
the forces which have driven me and you and you. He pointed his finger at various spots in the hall to emphasize his words. Yes, all of us, to seek out this hall tonight, to come together, united for our great cause. When the applause died down, he continued. Yes, fellow soldiers, this hall tonight is our sanctuary, our oasis of strength and righteousness in a world of double-crossing, rot, and decay. Again, there was applause and shouts from various parts of the hall like, You tell him, George, tell him. Don't pull your punches. Give it to him straight from the shoulder. The applause and the shouting were deafening. I squirmed in my seat. Turning around, I saw that several blue uniformed ushers had taken seats in the row behind me. For those of you who are newcomers, Stanley said quietly, I want to explain just the merest outline of our great purpose and of our God-given beliefs. First, we know, we don't think, mind you, we know, that the returning soldier deserves the most and the best this country can give him. The cheering almost drowned out his last words. Secondly, we believe this applies not only to the clean young men who fought in this war, but to those of us who, because of age or infirmity, had to stay behind and suffer the tortures of doubt and anxiety and fear for those loved ones at the front. And who are they who stayed behind but the parents, the wives, the loved ones of the boys who fought? <laughs> he's this playing is, to his this, audience. Yeah, he's playing to his audience. This is a good scam. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they had to wait. They had to wait. <laughs> they had to wait and deal with the rations. They couldn't have a chocolate bar. Uh, okay. All right. They also deserve. They also deserve things. I mean, listen. Yes, Americans deserved better uh, during wartime. I'm sure, like on the home front, particularly the women, especially the women yeah. of color. And thirdly, Stanley bellowed, thirdly and essentially, we believe that everyone who took part in this war because it was his duty and not because of narrow reasons of racial revenge should have a voice in the way this land of ours is governed. And that we intend to make our right no matter what means may be necessary. So yeah. let's break this down. Yeah, this is uh, this right. is some some very uh, skillfully crafted language. So everyone who took part in the war, because it was their duty, and not because of reasons of racial, racial revenge. revenge. Those are the people who should have a voice in the way our land is governed. So okay, what are we saying? Well, what is racial revenge? Well, if you were fighting this war and you were Jewish, you probably wanted to see get revenge you for wanna fucking your family. Stop who, the Nazis. Right. Yes. Yeah. And of course the Jews weren't singled out. They were the largest share of the killings, but um but they weren't the only people Hitler killed and they it were was probably everybody. It right. was gay people. It was disabled people. It yeah. was Fucking everybody who wasn't white. It didn't yeah. matter if you were Jewish, if you were right. black, if you were just a little too olive skinned, you know, you were suspicious. Like it was just yeah. everybody. And so Stanley is saying, uh, if you fought the war for those reasons, you do not get a say in this new 
way of things that I am proposing. But right. but if you are a white person who fought just because you were drafted, you deserve, you know, a say in things. Obviously, what does he say? He's saying, you know, white people only. But like the test, like what test would you give in this theoretical version, right? It's like, it's like, oh, okay, you were you were Jewish. Can you prove that you didn't fight World War II for revenge? The hall went wild. The audience whistled, stomped, yelled its crazy head up. Stanley let them cheer for three minutes before he called for silence. Then, in a sanctimonious, dramatic stage whisper, he said, That, my friends, is what we believe. There are many more points, to be sure. I will speak of them later, but I can sum it all up in one phrase. The hall was hushed, awaiting the magic phrase. Stanley waited until there was dead silence. Then he roared, America for Americans. Yeah, this is literally think, just America first. Yeah, this is America first. America first 1.25. I, I mean, <laughs> it may be America first kept re-releasing OS updates. I would I would bet that this was influenced by um Charles Lindbergh's yes. campaign. His he was America he was an America firster. Mm-hmm. Uh for sure, he was definitely like American fascist and uh He in, was very important to Americans. Yeah. Like Everyone knew who he was, and people fucking loved him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. After the hall quieted down, he began again. Tell me, my fellow soldiers, he shouted, who has profited from this war? The boy who lost his life on Bataan to make Siberia safe for the Red Russians? No, the audience shouted. The Marine who left a leg on the beach at New Guinea to keep the Dutch and British empires safe for the English and for Queen Wilhelmina? No, the audience thundered. The 18-year-old boy in khaki left to rot on the Normandy beachhead just because King Stalin wanted a second front? No, no! The lad from our own sunny California who died at Enzio to make Italy safe for the Italian Reds 
and to give Triste to Bloody Tito. No, 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 no. Classic Red Scare got that anti-Italian stuff baked in to that. And then, uh, yeah, then the elitism thing of the two, you know, Western Northern Europe monarchies who don't, quote unquote, need our help Mm -hmm. um, because that that grievance never went away, I guess, for some people. And, uh, yeah, it's just a toxic stew. Of xenophobia right. and isolationism. So, so this is an important point here. So he's saying, "Well, American soldiers fought the war, and what did we get? You know, we 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 didn't get anything." Yeah. Uh, I want to point out that this was a year after the passing of the GI Bill, the GI Bill, which you know made white Americans richer. You know, I mean, it it let the GIs go to college for free. I mean, listen. Is can anything make up for the horrible sacrifice of going through what they went through? Like no, no. like they went through a nightmare. You know, it, it was you know it was horrible. And aftercare continues to be bad. I mean, right. the VA is still notoriously underfunded and disorganized and bad at giving care to lots of different kinds of soldiers. Yeah. Um, so I wonder how I'd be curious to know how it was in the 1940s. Yeah, I'm after curious. This, in after this era of. Uh, of veterans, but spoiler, he does not mention the GI Bill, you know. So it's interesting that um, he's saying you got nothing a year after, you know, they got what we would consider to be one of the most important landmark pieces of legislation, you know. It's also in like the most socialist shit we've ever done. Yeah, absolutely. Like, no question. We, we basically were like told a generation, go to college, for, you can go yeah, to college for free. An you entire know? generation of white people got to go to college and build wealth as early as age 18. Right. And that kicked off this exponential curve where now the white family has at least 10 times the amount of wealth of like any other like family of color. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, it's like you can d- draw just a direct line from the GI Bill because a lot of soldiers who weren't white right. couldn't cash in on that. You know, most, most black soldiers uh, and like Latinx soldiers, f- folks who were not white coming back did couldn't get the GI Bill, you know, yeah. really. The, like, they didn't really get to cash in the way everyone else did when they came back and bought their bought into Levittown and all that shit and couldn't buy homes and were prohibited from doing so. This and is also very true. still couldn't attend most colleges. Yep. <laughs> like, uh, it, it was, was still Jim Crow. Yeah, it was. None, in- of, you know, none of us could vote <laughs> for another, like, 30 years. It was incredibly racist and uh, and detrimental to our society, and we're still feeling the effects of the of the uh, of the way the GI Bill was proportioned today. To exactly. Day. Yes. Um, it, it's interesting though because his audience here, being middle aged and older, probably did not fight in this particular war. No. So this isn't really about this war. It's about using this war as a kicking off point to rejudge these grievances and right. get that snowball of hate going again. That's exactly right. The audience kept chanting the refrain, and as the questions kept pouring out from Stanley's lips, voices in the hall began to shout, Lay it on, George! Give it to him straight! Get the record clean! Stanley gave it to them straight. I ask you, brothers and sisters, 
Did you get anything out of this war? No, no. Except pain and bloodshed and the loss of your sons and husbands and friends and dear ones? No. Stanley pointed a bony finger at his seat in the front aisle and shouted, Did you grow fat and wealthy in this war, Mrs. Timpkins? A hysterical feminine voice screamed out, No, I didn't, I didn't. <laughs> who, who is Mrs. Timpkins? I love Mrs. Timpkins. <laughs> I love all these audience plants. <laughs> yeah. I bet it's like not even, it's just like a trust fall. Like he just says things and then someone spontaneously in the audience is just like, I want to be that person. I'll be that person. So it doesn't, it, the, this person isn't even named Mrs. Timpkins. She was just like, oh, I just need to come <laughs> in and fill this void of silence. <laughs> you know, he pointed at me. So I guess I should say something. Yeah. Like, you know, there's that weird thing that happens when when the magic man's on stage where right. you just start believing whatever he tells you. Maybe Miss Timpkins is the killer. Ooh. Think about it. She's hysterical. She's screaming. She's like, I did imagine? it. I did it. Yeah. It I could. did it. I did it. But she's those who protest too much. Yeah, she's a little vocal. Did the murder. A little vocal. So put Miss Timpkins on the board. Yeah. <laughs> I think of the big board of potential suspects. I think you're right. Well, we have so few suspects. <laughs> I know. I'll take anybody. <laughs> Stanley kept right on. Who profited from this war? If we here in this hall didn't, then who did? The audience was hushed expectantly, awaiting its cue. Stanley waited another dramatic second and then gave it to them. I'll tell you who raked in the profits. I'll tell you, it was not Uncle Sam. The big money did not go to Americans. Then who got it, you may ask? Yeah! The audience howled. <laughs> I'll tell you who, Stanley roared. Here we go. <laughs> who did it? Who did it, Professor Stanley? <laughs> Godless, atheistic Russia got it. The Red Generals and Commissars and Family Destroyers got it. They got our Jeeps, our trucks, our oil, our butter. They built up their stockpiles of every luxury known to man, produced and manufactured in the USA, while our pink politicians in Washington deprived us of everything but the bare necessities. Tell it, tell it, roared the audience. Content warning, there are some slurs, there are some epithets, there are some coded, very, very racially racist statements ahead. So this is a content warning for that, and that this book is bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, content warning, this book sucks. Yes. <laughs> and old perfidious Albion got his share too. King George lived in luxury all through the war. Churchill smoked his dozen Corona Coronas every day, while we in the United States scrounged around for a measly cigarette, while our boys at the front went without tobacco. The English financiers grew rich during the war by our blood. Who saved India for them? The U.S. Army. Who won Burma back from the Japs? The U.S. Army. Who invaded Normandy? The British? You know, in history class, we learn about this, and I, I looked it up, and I, I, I believe it's true. Uh, 
America profited greatly from the war. It was like the most successful con. Yeah, weapons manufacturing and war manufacturing was a huge boon to the U.S. economy. And, um, you know, I think we went from, I, I think I saw it was something like 84 billion GDP to like 140 GDP in like the span of like less than a decade over the course of the war. It was like, it, it was, it was huge. crazy how much industries profited from the war. The voice from the stage kept blaring out, warm, resonant, electric. I had to hand it to Stanley. He had that audience in the palm of his hand. What he was saying bewildered me at first and then frightened me, but I had to admit he was putting it over. It wasn't a speech in the usual sense. He worked more like an orchestra conductor, using his voice as a baton. He fed the audience a catchword or a catchphrase, and they picked it up from there. He was like the leader of a well-trained chorus. Nevertheless, continued Stanley, there were some people right here in our own country who raked in their goodly share of the blood money. I won't call them Americans, even if some of them do speak English, with a foreign accent. But they lived in luxury all through the war and grew fat on our blood, like leeches, like bloodsuckers. I'll tell you who they are. The conspirators of the CIO, the unions. Tear them, roared the audience. Tear them apart. Never fear, my fellow Americans, Stanley shouted. I'll treat the devil the way he should be treated. Labor grew rich during the war. They pulled down $150 a week, week after week. All the years when our real, red-blooded American boys were suffering in the blood and terror and misery of the foxholes. There were no atheists in the foxholes, but these leeches at home were God-insulating, luxury-wallowing profiteers. And now they are striking for more, for more, mind you. You asked me to name them. I'll name them. They're the men who raked in the gravy while we shed our blood. They're the communistic, atheistic, international financiers. Somebody off on the side shouted, call it by their right names, George. Don't pull your punches. Name them, name them. Oh God, this sucks. Oh fuck, the anti-Semitism vibrations are... Hi. <laughs> oh, well, then the earthquake is about to be shattered. All right, let's do in this. this. next line. All right, bring out the seismograph. And the audience at last came out in one frenzied shout. The Jews! The Jews! Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all of this song and dance just to get to a point where everyone can freely chant. Jews, Jews. Yeah. God, this this sucks so much. I'm so sorry, darling, that you even had to, like, read this to me. Yeah. Well, you (laughs) know. This fucking sucks. No, it does suck. I like that that they're just saying the Jews, the Jews. You know what I mean? As opposed to just leaving it at international financiers. I mean, at least, like, you know, you know, name the thing. You know what I mean? Name that (laughs) thing. thing. You know. What do you hate? You know. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's funny that like, like, were the Jews like workers? Like, is that what like, like. Again, yeah, again, this is tying a bunch of weird threads that don't go together. Right. The elite 
finance people who, by the way, weren't the Jews. No. <laughs> uh, not at all. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and there, and then labor, like the la- the unions, those are actual blue collar people, right? Um, it, it's just a it's completely a jumbled mess. Yeah, it's a jumbled mess. But, but here's this the is, thing: it's, this is but still it's happening. Not. This is like what, like this sounds like something Hannity would say last night. Well, that's it's it is. I I I think though I've been saying we've been saying Trump because he's the one in front. It's it's very Hannity. It's it's very very Hannity. E. It's um, it's just the American. It's it's always been like just the secret American consciousness, right? You know, like that that has always just kind of been the hive mind of America is still stuck in all of these ideas, and it never changed. No. We just keep putting band aids up and scaffolding around it. I'll tell you who got the glory and the dividends. He shouted. I'm not the kind who speaks well of the dead just because they're dead. I'll name the names even if it reaches down to the brimstones of hell. The name is Roosevelt. The audience, a seething mass by now, corrected its leader. Roosevelt! They shouted. Roosevelt! Call him by his right name. Give it to him, George. So yeah, this was apparently a conspiracy theory. Yeah, from that this Roosevelt era. was a secret Jew. Wow, what a what a thing. Yeah. To learn, I didn't know that. Yeah, is that and like that crazy? I think I've watched at least a couple of Ken Burns documentaries on those fucks. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. They didn't I, talk about that. They didn't talk about that at all. Yeah. And who got the wages you earned slaving to make the implements of war for King George and Churchill, for Stalin and Ivan the Terrible? <laughs> We're bringing back some weird characters I know, from yeah. the past. This is becoming such a weird, like this is the kind of collage you'd see on the side of like, uh, like a like a ugly building in LA where right, it's, yeah, like, it's like painted. It's like Elvis of like the- and Ed Bagley Jr. and Angelina Jolie. Like you're like, what combination of people is this? It's just, yeah, but instead it's King George, <laughs> Churchill, Stalin, and Ivan the Terrible. And it's like kind of this like wistful yeah. looking, but they're all like looking at the wind, like the wind is like blowing their hair all, to, you know. All- this dude is literally like, he's about to talk about Mongols. Like I yeah. feel very, yeah. <laughs> very upset and queasy. <laughs> right back. Morgenthau! The crowd yelled. Morgenthau! The whole audience rose to its feet, yelling its lungs out, shouting, Rosenfield! Morgenthau! The Jews! The international bankers! I felt sick at my stomach. I wanted to get out of there fast. The old couple was no longer beside me. Two husky boys in blue had taken their places in the tumult and shouting, and they stood there clapping their beefy hands. Uh, Phil thinks anti-Semitism is a racket. Uh, thank God. Here. I mean, I'm I, like, literally when you said, like, I feel like, once Phil said I'm feeling sick to my stomach, I was so relieved. Yeah. <laughs> just like, wait, what, like, is he just not reacting to this? <laughs> the, 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 like, temperature and the energy of the auditorium <laughs> has risen significantly. Uh. <laughs> it is really scary in there right now. Oh, yeah, it is uh, disturbing. I was wondering, though, I was thinking to myself, like, 
should Phil be anti-Semite? Like, shouldn't this work on Phil? If Phil is the kind of person who believes that, like, everything's a racket and, like, everybody is, like, everything's a scam, like, why doesn't he believe that, like, Jews are scamming him out of money? Like, he seems like exactly the kind of person who would believe this. Like, I don't know. I haven't seen, like, what have we seen in his character, Mm -hmm. in, like, the way he's portrayed that, like, really, like, makes me think that like this is somebody who wouldn't who wouldn't buy into this kind of not I mean I almost would believe it more if he was like Edna dated this guy this guy's full of crap therefore anti-semitism is crap like at least I would get the motivation like everything that that he is going to hate everything that Stanley says just because he is Stanley. Right. You know? But otherwise, I don't know. Am I being unfair to Phil? No, you're being totally fair to Phil. I think, like, if instead of meeting Rosa, if he met a Stanley-type figure and was like, I'll make a man out of you. Right. And then they become, you know, anti-Semites together, and then maybe he would have become one of Stanley's henchmen. Who knows? But because he's a bookie and he has this whole other kind of independent identity, right. I can see how he'd be the other kind of white guy who's like, I'm not an anti-Semite, but I've done literally nothing to stop it. <laughs> and when I'm around it, I don't complain. Right. <laughs> but I'll but I'll admit to myself later that whoa, that was a sticky situation back there. I do love this uh this like archetype in fiction where it's like, you know, like I'm a I'm a gruff tough guy who, you know, who doesn't give a rat's ass and racism is bad. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I don't buy into that crap. It's like, oh, okay. Or wait, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, well, because the very premise of that character archetype is his superiority and right. his alpha status and his uh, complete free license to shoot or pay or take from whatever or whoever they want. Right. It undercuts the character. Sure. Of what, what the audience is expecting and wanting from that character anyway. Right. You know, they'll they'll benefit from a racist society, but they they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to say, oh, I I'm I'm for racism, you know. They want they don't want to be a race traitor either. It's right. like they want to continue the, that that like what where most people are. Like right. really trying to ride that line and just looking around them and being defensive and hoping no one calls them out on uh how they've done nothing for anyone. Yay. <laughs> but they never stopped watching me. I was now almost surrounded by Stanley's goons. Stanley managed to get the yelling down and under control. Mind you, he said in a mock, pious, sanctimonious voice, I'd be the last one to say anything against an entire race of people. The audience laughed at that. It was a great joke to them. One of the huskies turned to me and winked and said, Boy, he's really great tonight, isn't he? Yeah, I said, he sure is. I'd be the last man on earth, Stanley intoned to blacken the name of any people, no matter what their race or nationality. We understand, the bruiser next to me yelled. (laughs) 
that's a very funny thing to yell. <laughs> we understand. understand. <laughs> yeah, these are as like lived as like I think Professor Stanley's dialogue is. Uh, the audience's dialogue is hilarious. Like <laughs> it makes they're just no like sense. they're like going off for like full sentences, <laughs> which like, is like impossible in a roaring crowd. Right. You wouldn't have heard all of that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but what's about to be said is not hilarious. Oh, good. Call them by their right names, the N-words, and the Jews. Right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, you know. yeah, you know. Yeah, it was funny because they didn't even really talk about black people. Nope, they didn't. But it was just, if, you, if you're if you anti-Semitic, it's like kind of like, okay, if I can get you on board for this, then you already... You know, like yeah. it's implied that you're already uh, someone who enjoys the way things currently are in 1945. Anti-black racism is the free bingo square in this car, you know, in yes. this car. Yeah, and no but. matter what you're interfacing with, anti-black racism will be there. Please fill in that square. Right. You don't, fill in the don't, square, you get it free. You get it free. <laughs> you don't need to wait until it works for your play. You should fill it in, because yeah. it's there. <laughs> but I have to place the blame, Stanley exclaimed where it rightfully belongs, and where God Almighty himself has placed it, no matter what the cost. Stanley kept looking over the audience keenly, not missing a thing. His hands were clenched at his sides. Then, after a thorough sizing up of the people in the hall, he relaxed. He moved back a step and smiled, fully aware of the effect his words had upon them. He had done a good, thorough job, and now he could afford to ease up. The tumult in the hall rose in a weird and deafening crescendo. In the midst of it, Stanley lifted his right arm and the band clattered onto the stage. Ew. Yeah, so, yeah, now I mean, he's just hiling, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. It doesn't sound like it's different than hiling. Maybe it's a couple inches lower. He's just raising his right arm. Yeah, it's a it's it's they don't, men- they don't mention Hylesque. they don't mention what the elbow's doing. So I'm right. imagining it's straight. Listen, if you wanted me to think it wasn't a hile, you would have described it differently. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I think the author is trying to invoke it. Invoke, invoke, invoke. the hile. <laughs> yes. Mm. Mm. Yes. Let us now show what we feel by singing. Stanley intoned. The band broke forth into the strains of God Bless America, and the audience's voices swelled up to the dome, filling the hall with sound. I looked around me. There was sweat on the face of everyone I could see. I could feel the moisture on my own forehead. After leading the first few bars of the song, Stanley downed a glass of water and walked off stage. The singing continued all around us. Another figure emerged from the wings and walked to the center of the stage. He was a short, stocky man in a civilian suit, but wearing a tan service cap. He joined in the singing, and when it was over, clapped his hands for attention. The audience cheered, whistled, applauded, stamped their feet on the floor again. The noise around us was deafening. Wherever I turned, my eye came smack up against a blue uniform. They had me completely boxed in. The man on the platform held up his hands for silence. As soon as he got it, he began to speak. Some of you may not know me, someone in the audience yelled. We know you, Hal. We know you all right, old boy. 
Oh, it's all just a bunch of Kashi good friends out here. (laughs) Absolutely. Just having free conversations like it's a pub. But I represent the boys that this here meeting is all about. The boys that fought on Guadalcanal, in the Marianas, at Salerno, at Anzio, on the Normandy beaches. In order to make a living reality of the great dreams of our great commander, George Stanley, we need more than noble sentiments. I won't drag this out and sneak up on you folks. I'll do it in the military way and come right out with it. We need cash. The speaker paused significantly before starting his collections. The audience was quiet, waiting. I felt trapped. In the midst of a pause, a clear voice on the other side of the hall said, Cash for what? It was spoken quietly but strongly, but in the silence it sounded like a shout. Hal, on the platform, opened his mouth but no words came out. Cash for what? repeated the voice on the other side of the hall. To build up hatred for our allies? To start another war? To make me fight against the men who fought on my side in France, in Belgium, in Germany? I'm a vet too, and I want to know, cash for what? We also want to know what the cash is for. Yeah, well, We have well, no idea what the cash is for we, at this point. We, the audience, are the last to know any information <laughs> in this world. <laughs> the speaker on the stage turned purple, and the angry buzz that started down in the audience swelled to a roar. Somebody yelled, Kill the dirty Jew! Oh my god. A voice next to me shouted, Let's get the bastard! I felt sorry for the man, whoever it was. He had guts all right, but guts wasn't enough in that crowd. There was a wild surge all over the audience. The man on the platform pointed down the seats and yelled, There he is! Don't let him get away! Get him! Get him! I saw flying fist over where the lone protestant had stood. Suddenly, I realized the toughies were no longer around me. Most of the seats near me were empty. Even the guard at the aisle entrance was rushing down to join the massacre. Oh my God, are we really about to be in a situation where he's gonna be like, woo, thank God everybody went after that Jew to kill him so the heat's off me? Is that what, <laughs> is that literally what's happening right now? That is basically more or less what's happening right now. I mean, I think Phil's a Nazi. <laughs> I moved swiftly to the aisle and back to the rear door. The whole auditorium was a bedlam of movement, shouting, kill the goddamn bread was the last thing I heard before the rear doors closed behind me. And that is part one of chapter 16 of Murder in the Glass Room (laughs) by Edward Rolfe and Lester Fuller. (laughs) I would argue the next chapter shows Phil both at his most competent and also with his biggest bumbles. <laughs> like, oh, it's lo- definitely, we definitely see the limits of Phil, Phil. Phil's abilities. Um, the fabil- Phil abilities. So, uh, after this, we only have two more episodes left. And the uh, the mystery is about to be revealed. We are very soon going to know uh, who killed Edna Norris. Uh, do you want to take a final guess before we get to the chapters, before we get to the parts of the book that reveal all that we uh, we need to know here. 
You got a theory? So I just don't buy the Rosa theory. I know that we're supposed to I, I not trust her, but I don't understand why yet. Um, there was a moment where I was like, has Shelly ever been to Edna's house? And I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I kind of, I'm on, uh, this is tough. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of want to believe it's Murdoch, but I think he's got some other game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> potentially, it seems like he's scheming to get Phil out, like get out from under Phil as like, is like stooge. It's a motivation. It's a motivation. Yeah. Um, so we also know that he's been tailing Phil this whole time. I mean, that exactly. So he's, he's been capable following, of some shit. Yeah, he's capable of more sneakiness than we originally thought. They set him up to be kind of a doof. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, who's and and Phil seems to underestimate his detective abilities, uh, even yeah. though he admits that he himself has no detective abilities. So right. and coupled with the fact that, you know, as we're seeing Murdoch pops up in very like where you least expect it places. Right. So uh so I'm that's that's the one that's making the most sense to me right now, but at the same time, it's like I I still kind of love that Tyler, that Tyler Durden shit. <laughs> I well, know listen, that's the, not what it is, but it's what I want it to be. The bet, yeah. I mean, it is the best. It's the best resolution for this book. Uh, is that Phil Norris did it and he just blacked out and didn't remember. <laughs> uh, that that is the that's the best explanation. But um, so wait, okay, so wait, are you going with Murdoch? I'm going with Murdoch. You're going with Murdoch. Okay, we got one for Murdoch. Uh, we'd like to know what your theories are. This is your last chance to be a hero. Yes, and to, please. And to call it right. Uh, you can find us at Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod. Yeah, and on Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. All right, let us know those theories. We want to know who killed Edna Norris. And uh, in the next chapter, it's the final confrontation between Phil Norris and Stanley. Oh my God. Yeah. You talk to him fresh off of like a successful rally that ends in a literal manhunt. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, this is gonna be something. Mano a mano, the pay-per-view of the century. Wow. The conflict we have been waiting for. This is it. All right. Coming up, that's next time on Dirt Cheap. Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Chloe Chobel. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Additional tracks you hear on this episode are from Epidemic Sound. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod and Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. Dirt Cheap.